morning, everybody. Good to be here this morning. We've got lots to do, so let's dig in. Uh, so we're in Daniel 6 uh, today, and I've got, uh, I put Dare to be a Daniel up there in a, in a picture of probably the most famous lion in the world, the, the Lion King lion from the, the animated cartoons. And I think that, I hope that we'll find today that neither of those things really has much to do with the passage. Um, those are actually kind of a, a bit of a red herring there. Um, so that's just there because I thought it would look nice. But we'll see, I think, um, hopefully we'll be able to take a fresh look at Daniel 6 and uh, see what God has in it for us, even though it's a passage that many of us will, uh, will know fairly well. So um, the chapter 6 in Daniel could be, it's one account, like it's one story from start to finish, um, but it could be a lot of sermons. And Daniel's kind of a funny book um, in Scripture. It's one of the most debated books in Scripture in terms of commentators. Made of two languages, it's got Aramaic and Hebrew, um, Hebrew in there, not Hebrews, um, and then it's also got two different types of writing. It's got historical and prophetic writing, and commentators argue about all of it. So that makes it more interesting to try to dig in and learn about it, because you'll see some commentators say, "No such thing as prophecy ahead of time," and so it must have been written after. Or you'll see all sorts of different stuff. So it's, it makes it entertaining, anyways. So um, in Daniel, uh, start the book starts with him uh, going into captivity when he's roughly 15 years old in chapter 1. And he's given a new name. He's brought to Babylon, and he's given the name Belteshazzar. And then in chapter 3, we see the fiery furnace. Uh, chapter 2 is, of course, the, there's a um, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, and Daniel helps interpret it. And then chapter 3 is the fiery furnace, and, and there's a lot of pride going on in there. And there's also a confrontation between God's laws and man's laws. And then in chapter 4, we see uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, sets himself up as God or sees himself greater than he is and he struggles with pride. God kind of brings him down. And then in chapter 5 from last week, Josh brought us through that. Um, it's the king is Belshazzar, who is Nebuchadnezzar's son or grandson, and he um, struggles with pride as well. And he, he sets himself up as being something pretty special. Uh, chapter 5 said he exalted himself against the Lord of heaven. And, and he's actually having a party while his city is besieged, and he dies that night. And so at the end of chapter 5, there's a new king in town. His name is Darius. And just before that, Daniel was made the third highest uh, official in the land after having been out of power for quite a while, by the sounds of it. Sounds like he was kind of ignored by, um, Nebuchadnezzar, or by Belshazzar. So Babylon fell to Darius the Mede. And, uh, and that's where we, we take off in the story. So let's read verses 1 through 3 in Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be thro uh, throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So who's this Darius? Historically, we're not really sure. There's a lot of different things said about him. There were multiple Dariuses. Some people think it's a title. Some people think it's a name. But we got Darius there. And he appoints some leaders. And, and my first thought when I read this is, okay, why doesn't he get rid of everybody and start fresh? And as I thought about it for a while, I thought, you know, they're, they're taking over the country. They're not destroying it. They're not trying to, you know, they're not um, enemies from thousand generations. They're not trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. They're trying to take over, so they still want everything to function well. They want taxes. They want you know, there to be lawless, uh, lawfulness rather than lawlessness. 
And there's a lot of institutional knowledge that comes with the people who are currently in the place. If you think about what you do with your time right now, if you, told, if you stepped away and said, go ahead, somebody take my spot, you know, I think there'd be, you'd probably imagine there'd be a lot of stuff missed and left behind. So that's what we have here. We have um, uh, Darius setting up people to take control of this place and using some of the people who are already there. And uh, next, we know that Daniel is one of the three main leaders. And it's interesting because through the book of Daniel, starting right in chapter 1, he's been called both Daniel and Belteshazzar, which was his Babylonian name. And here's kind of the end of uh, Daniel being Belteshazzar. He's Daniel again. And what that tells me is that rather than being a Babylonian Jew who had been taken from his home and then became a Babylonian, we see Daniel being a Jew in Babylon. So he's still Daniel. He's still the guy um, that he was originally, right? He hasn't assimilated. So he's become part of the culture, but he hasn't, um, he hasn't melded into it. He hasn't given up what um, God had made him to be. And the job of these three leaders, of which he's one, was uh, to make sure that the king didn't suffer loss. So what are they talking about there? Probably um, territory, you know, don't want to see rebellion happen in the country, don't want to see it shrink to enemies. Um, and then also probably to do with taxation and theft. They wanted to make sure that, you know, the king was getting theirs, the royal coffers were still being filled. And so really what the job of these people to do was to put the king's interest before their own. And Daniel has distinguished himself in this role. He's been putting the king's interest before his own. And I wonder why. Like, he's in his 80s now, so he's been gone from home for probably 65 to 70 years from his homeland. And really, what loyalty should he have to Darius and his empire? I mean, really, what loyalty should he have to Nebuchadnezzar, right? To, that, to the Babylonian empire before them. He'd been, you know, ripped from his home, and then, you know, his meet the new leader may be kind of similar to the old leader. And I think the reason for that is found in Jeremiah 29, um, and I've got a section of it for you here, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you guys read it. It's actually, Jeremiah 29 is a really cool passage. It's, uh, it's, a it's a letter written to the Jews in captivity in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar um, uh, as God gave the information to Jeremiah. And I'll just point out uh, in particular, it's talking about this situation exactly. Um, yeah, I guess I'll read most of it. It says, Thus said the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into Jerusalem, from, ba uh, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. And I'll stop there, and I'll just show you, point out in verse 10 as well, it says, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. So God has not forgotten them, but meanwhile, while they're in that place, like I underlined there, they're supposed to seek the welfare of the city where they've been sent. Um, God asked them to live in and contribute to the place where he put them. And we often claim verse 11 in Jeremiah 29 where it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. But we forget all about the rest of the passage. We rip it out of context. And what we see here is that God has called them to enrich the place where he's put them. Now, lately, I've, I've been 
watching the news the last couple of years the same way a lot of people would watch a car crash. Like, I just can't look away. And there's so much bad news out there. You know, if you, pay, if you do it right, you can only get bad news. I've, I've been doing it right, you know. So um, it feels kind of, to me, like the world is falling apart. There's wars, there's disasters, there's crime. There's people, lots of people can't even tell the difference between a man and a woman anymore. People are taking pride in wickedness, and, and people are being forced to go along with that and ostracized if they don't. And in this world, it makes me want to withdraw and to cut off my connection to the outside world and just long for Jesus to take me home, right? This place is crumbling, like I'll just hide in a corner and Jesus, just come soon, right? But I think, and I, this is a good impulse, right? Like I want to protect my family from these negative things, from the sin that's going on in the world around me and this difficulty. But really, when we look at God's instructions to his people through the Bible, um, that's not what he instructed us to do, was to hide as his people. Um, and we'll just look really quickly at some of God's instructions to his people over here. So first, we've got in Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city where I sent you. Like, dig in, make it good, make it beautiful, right? Then we've got Genesis, 3, or Genesis 12, and I'll just read the last bit there. This is his, his kind of charge to Abraham of what God is going to do. And he says, in you all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So how can they be blessed from hi if he's hiding in a corner, right? It doesn't work that way. Then we've got Colossians 3, 23 and 24. It says, whatever you do, work heartily as unto the Lord, or as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So again, we see him telling us, do everything you're doing. Don't hide, don't take yourself away but enrich the place you are. Do it as unto the Lord. And that's, I think, what Daniel was doing. Um, and there's another verse, uh, another passage that I wanted to cover real quick. 1 Peter 2, um, verses 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, or some versions say aliens and pilgrims, but somebody who doesn't belong there, somebody who's just passing through. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And I think the key word for me there is among the Gentiles. Not near the Gentiles or as one of the Gentiles, but among them. So with them, but somehow different, right? So not holding themselves off in a corner and hiding culturally, but part of the group and yet still distinct. So I think that's some of what we see of why Daniel uh, is living this way. And I wonder what our, how our city would change if we fully embraced this. If instead of looking at the news and looking at the stuff that goes on in my children's school or at the workplace and trying to divide myself from it, I, um, I sought the welfare of my city and dug in and became a part of it. Right? Like God isn't calling us all to be politicians or teachers or doctors, but might, he may be calling one of us to be a politician he may be calling me to be the best um, weed sprayer that I can be. He may be calling you to be the best phone answerer at the business that you can be, right? He wants us to be there and contributing to the welfare of the place where he put us. Let's uh, move on and, uh, and see what God has to say in the next passage here. We'll read uh, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. It says, then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. 
because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors, are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So first we see that lawyers are the same throughout time. Look at the wording. Injunction, document, ordinance, that kind of stuff. So we, we see that lawyers are always the same. They've always got big words they're using. And we see that those, the rest of the leaders, there was a group of them, we don't know how many. We're not, I'm not convinced it was all 122 of the other leaders. Um, don't like Daniel. And it's not really clear why. Um, from the book of Colin, my idea on this is I have two uh, things that I suspect that uh, might be why. One is that he's an outsider. After all this time, he still didn't become a Babylonian Jew, but he's still Daniel the Jew, right? So he's an outsider. He's not one of them. And secondly, I see jealousy in there. I see that this guy who's one of them is being elevated above them. And what does a group like to do other than tear down the person who's being elevated above them, right? We don't want to see anyone better than us or elevated beyond us. So uh, that's what I see there. I see, uh, I see him being an outsider still, and I see jealousy in their, in their, um, in their hearts. But, it does, but the Bible doesn't say that. But when they realize that he's not corrupt, it doesn't actually change anything. They're not after him because they don't like him because he's corrupt. And it doesn't, the Bible doesn't say he's perfect, right? The Bible doesn't say that. It just says that he's not corrupt, that he's faithful in his duties. And um, that doesn't change their opinion. They're still going to tear him down. And it reminds me of a story I read uh, recently about uh, something that happened in the Russian army in the last decade. I don't know when it was. I don't know who the guy was. But apparently, um, a new general was put in charge of the army. And he was supposed to deal with a lot of the graft and corruption in the army. And he was in there about a year, and he was doing a good job. He was kind of tearing it apart and making sure that you know, the money that was supposed to go towards goods was going towards those goods, and people were stopping siphoning stuff off and selling the supplies and getting new ones and all this kind of stuff. And he made it somewhere between uh, one and two years, I think, before basically everybody else in the army said, he's got to go. And he was removed as general of the army because everybody still wanted their graft to continue. Nobody wanted things upset. They didn't want their, um, their unfaithfulness to be shown. So, you know, he tried and then he got removed. And I, I think that might be what happens here, where, you know, Daniel is not going to be, um, is probably not going to let them keep going with their schemes, right? Because they probably all got a hand in the cookie jar somehow. They're all doing something on the side for themselves. You know, you got to put some away from me, right? So that's what I picture happening with these other leaders there. They're not um, uh, making sure the king doesn't suffer any loss. So um, they looked, they projected, they, they saw that Daniel... They thought that Daniel would have the same weaknesses that they did. And they were, I think, kind of surprised when he was faithful. And they realized that Daniel is distinguished only by his relationship with his God. So that's what they go after. And when they come to the king in verses 6 through 8, they lie. They say, all of us agree, we've all decided. Well, no, they don't. 
Because Daniel, one of the three main leaders, doesn't agree. Right? It sounds like they didn't consult him in the plan to try to get rid of him. So they're lying. And, uh, and now we're going to go into a little bit of discussion about the, the structure of the book of Daniel. So chapters 2 through 7 are the ones that are written in Aramaic. And they're kind of written in pairs. So chapter 2 reflects chapter 7. Chapter 3 reflects chapter 6. And chapter 4 reflects chapter 5. So chapters 4 and 5, that was Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar's pride, kind of set off against each other. And chapter 3 was the fiery furnace, kind of a trial of kind of man's laws against God's laws. God's laws. And then we, we see this being set up here of man's laws against God's laws in chapter 6. And in chapter 3, there was supposed to be a statue that was made by Nebuchadnezzar, and they were supposed to worship and bow down to that. And here it's Darius who's put in the position to be worshipped or, or bowed down to. And in chapter 3, it was Nebuchadnezzar's idea. He had this idea, hey, I'm great. I'm going to make a great thing, and why doesn't everybody worship that? But here, we see it being brought to Darius. Like it's kind of, they're kind of, the, the Bible, the words they use kind of suggest that he's being pushed into it a little. They're cajoling him. They're trying to come in a group. Like they're not just, it says uh, one of the ways that one of the words can be translated, instead of coming in agreement, um, it says they come in a throng, you know, like kind of in a crowd after him. So we're dealing really with pride here, with putting um, themselves or something else as objects of worship and petition. And whether that temptation comes internally or externally, it's how we res they respond to it that makes all the difference. And we see in both chapters 3 and chapter 6 of Daniel that the kings respond poorly uh, to it. Now, Darius lets the, fla um, the flattery get to him, and he signs the law. And it's not actually entirely clear whether Darius is setting himself up to be worshipped or if he's supposed to be the mediator, like the high priest, between all the gods and the people um, for this 30 days. But he's rushed into it, and it makes me think, how often do we make decisions that can affect our spiritual health without proper consideration? You know, there's financially, there's lots of different ways to try to make sure you make good decisions, right? And one strategy I've heard of is you take the credit card, you freeze it in a block of ice, right? So then when you want to buy something, You've got to thaw the credit card. You've got to go home, get the credit card, get it out of the ice, thaw it before you can buy some, make some kind of purchase decision. So this is a strategy, right or wrong. And, you know, it could be a way that you could save some money, you know, save yourself from making a poor financial decision. But spiritually, everything we do has a spiritual consequence, right? We can't just freeze our spiritual decision-making and uh, come back and decide later, right? You know, give it an overnight or a week to think about Everything has spiritual consequences. And that's what happens with Darius here. He is uh, ignorant of spiritual consequences when he makes this decision. Let's read chapters, um, verses 10 to 15 and see where it goes next. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber to open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Dan uh, Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except you, O king, 
shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So Daniel, he hears about this, that the document had been signed, the law is in place, and what does he do? Well, first, he doesn't go and, I notice that he doesn't protest and go and try to change the law. He doesn't go talk to the king. He goes home like he always does, and he prays like he always does. And reading how he prays, he he prays with his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. It makes me wonder, why did he pray that way? Well, I think the Bible answers that. In uh, 1 Kings 8, um, there's some writing of Solomon, and it says, uh, and it's describing this exact situation. It's talking about if, if the people have sinned against God um, and are captives in a far-off land, and they plead with you and repent, and I'll, I'll read in verse 48, 48, pardon me, 48. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people. And grant them compassion, it says later too. So this is Solomon, after he's built the temple, he's saying, if they're somewhere in a far-off land, if they're captives, because of their sin, because we know they're going to sin, and they turn and repent and pray towards you, pray towards this temple, hear them, right? So this was something that Solomon had had, um, kind of created through that writing. Daniel, I believe, had read that, and then this had become kind of a custom that they prayed towards Jerusalem. But if I'm Daniel here, I'll be honest, my first thought is, seriously, Daniel, can you not get curtains on these windows? (laughs) Like, close the windows for a month. Can you not do that? Can you not adjust your practice just a little bit to conform to what they're asking you to do? Because then nobody would know, right? It would be no problem, and then everything would go like it always had. But remember what Daniel has been through. He's in his mid-80s by now. Think of the situation he's already faced. From chapter 2, where he interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that whole situation starts with, with the king's guard coming to him and taking them to kill them. And he says, hey, um, guard, do you mind telling me why we're going to die? Like, can you explain it to me? So, like, it's not like this is his first difficult situation that he's been in before. This reminds me of the Lord's Prayer, uh, where it says, the line where it says, give us this day our daily bread. And I often reflect on this, that I don't really know what this means. How often do I really understand or realize how much I actually need God? How often do you realize it? See, um, most of us have enough money in the bank that if, if our fridge was empty or our cupboards were bare, we'd go to the store and get more. And sure, we might experience financial trouble, but it's not the kind of trouble where someone's coming for us. Uh, you know, the king is saying, come on, it's, it's time for you to die now, right? And um, I think that 
Part of this is because most of our difficulties these days are spiritual and not materi- uh, material. Um, my, my material difficulties are small, and so it lets me forget. Because when, when Jesus was saying this, like he was talking about their actual bread that they were going to eat that day. Sometimes I think God has been so good to me that I take him for granted, right? It's, uh, you know, it's not a big problem, God. I'll call you when something comes up that I can't handle. I'll, I'll take care of the rest. It, it reminds me of the joke about the married couple. You know, before they get married, uh, husband and wife are talking and they make an agreement. She's, they decide, you know, the wife is going to take care of all the little decisions and the husband is going to take care of all the big decisions, right? They get married and turns out, you know, 50 years later they're reflecting and uh, they haven't had any big decisions yet. They've all been little decisions, right? And, and it's a joke and yet... How often do we do that with God, right? Say, God, I got this. I can take care of this one. I'll call you, God, when it gets really bad, right? Like, I've got this today, but tomorrow if it's bad, I'll call you. Or if it gets out of hand, right? Like, I'll take it for the next few days, and then we'll see where it goes. You know, if if I'm beyond my capacity, I'll call you. But that's not what Daniel is treating God like. It reminds me of um, John 6, where Jesus is talking with his disciples, and a bunch of the people have left him. Uh, I think we've got it for on the overhead there. And so um, Jesus asks his disciples, uh, do you want to leave too? And Peter answers him in uh, verse 68 there, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Right? Like, where else are the disciples going to go? There's no substitute for that. There's no second place. There's either God or not God. And in the same way here, Daniel, he knows there's no second place for God. He knows there's no other source of his strength or his hope, right? What other possible answer could there be? And just to kind of help pound this in there, because like, this is one of the things that I so often forget, I've got another couple passages for us here. We've got Colossians 3.3, 3, where Paul is speaking, and he says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Right, like that's where the whole, that's where your whole life rests, is centered. That's where your source of refuge and strength is. Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Right, so for what, what for me might feel like the mountains moving, or the earth giving way, even if it felt the same way for Daniel, he knew that God was in control. And if God had been providing him with the strength and was his refuge and his life was found in God, what kind of a fool would he have to be if he all of a sudden decided, you know what, this is a big problem. I'm going to take care of this one on my own, thanks God. Right? Or maybe if he tried to find his security through sneakiness or insincere behavior. Like if he just, you know, hid what he actually thought or, or believed. And... For me, what this brings to mind is just the little behaviors in life that I have an opportunity to either honor God or not in, where nobody's probably going to know. Like, am I going to cheat on my taxes just a little bit if it would make it so much easier? On that reporting to the government where I screwed up on something in my business, do I give the full report with that extra little bit of information, or do I cut that out because nobody will ever know? Right? If God is my refuge, if God is my strength, then I do the right thing, and whatever happens, happens. I leave it in God's hands. And so Daniel, in this section, it, it reminds me of another story. 
there's, there's a man I know in town, and many of you would know him too, but he has, and has had for many years, a handlebar mustache. Okay, so it comes down to, you know, a ways down. And there's this one gas plant nearby, and this man worked with me for a few years, and there's this one gas plant nearby that they're very serious about facial hair. Lip line. Everything below here gets cut off. If you could show up and you're trying to go in there, they've got a dry razor for you, and you can rip it off right there. So I asked this man who worked for me, I said, or with me, I said, would you be interested in spraying at this gas plant? I said, I know they've got this rule that's kind of, uh, you know, that, that you might not like. And he looked at me kind of deadpan, and he just said, I've had this mustache longer than you've been alive. And that was the end of his discussion, right? Like, he had no more words to say. That, that solved it. That made it pretty clear. And so, in the same way, I see Daniel standing in one place saying, I've, this God has been with me for 80-some years. Like, bring it on. Like, what are you going to do to me? God's got me, right? Like, live or die. Uh, lions eat me or not. So that's um, what I see as being Daniel's attitude in here. Not because he's tough and he can take it on, but because God is tough and God is his refuge. So it doesn't really matter so much that everybody's pitted against him. And so in, for, in uh, Daniel 6 here, we see these guys going back to the king. They catch Daniel. And they call Daniel an outsider. You know, they're saying he's not one of us, which is true, right? He's still a Jew. And now they're, they're kind of revealing their hand. They, they dislike Daniel so much that they're revealing to the king that they're against somebody that's kind of one of his favorites, right? And, and so the king, in verses 14 and 15, he, he's kind of upset, but he, he can't find a loophole. And so Daniel's going to the den, the lion's den. That's the plan. So let's read verses uh, 16 through 24 and see what the next section of this passage has for us. It says, Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So they, they both would have sealed that, just so there'd be no tampering, right? The king couldn't do anything, the nobles couldn't do anything. Um, then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. What a nice tone to end on, hey? <laughs> on that passage. Oof. I'm glad it wasn't me. Um, so we see here, Daniel doesn't make any defense. He doesn't protest. He knows that his judge is God. In fact, the name Daniel means God, the Lord is my judge. So his very name, the, the name that he's kept all these years, the Jewish name, 
means that the Lord is his judge, and so he remembers that. And he, he kind of appears to be unflappable, like he, he seems unbothered. And in reality, he hasn't really done anything wrong in this circumstance. He's not really at fault. And yet God allows him to go into the lion's den. This reminds me that God doesn't remove our problems from us. He removes our transgressions from us and goes through our problems with us. We've got a couple of verses that speak to that. We've got Psalm 23, uh, verse 4. It says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Right? It's God with Daniel in the problems, or God with us in the problems. And then there's Jesus speaking in John 17. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has, uh, the word, world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And this is what we're seeing a picture here of in Daniel. That Daniel is not of these people, and he's getting all sorts of evil going on around him and to him. But he's kept through that situation by God. And it would mean that God would keep them, even if, he came, even if God didn't shut the mouths of the lions, that would not mean that God had failed, right? That's not the end of the story, because we know that there's more to life than that. So we see that God plans for us to go through stuff, and he plans to be with us in it. And then we see in verse 22 of Daniel 6, that Daniel only ever states his case to the king after God has judged him. He says in there, um, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. So he's first found blameless before God and secondly before the king. So he, he recognizes and, and reveals to us that God is really his judge. And he gives the glory to where it belongs, to God. And then in verse 24, we see that the, li the lions were apparently hungry and the people who conspired against Daniel get theirs. And it seems pretty harsh, but that's the way stuff is sometimes with sin. The consequences of sin can be very harsh. Let's read the rest of the passage here and see how, how it comes to a conclusion. Verse uh, 25 through 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyprus, uh, Cyrus the Persian. And right here, I think, is why God did this. To show the world that he is God. He's not one of the gods. He's not a small g God. He is the God. Because God wants us to know about him, right? He has created, uh, he created the world. He created the book, the Bible, that we read so we can know about him. He came into the world so we could know him, right? So God wants that for us. And this reminds me again that the Bible isn't about us. The Bible is here to reveal God to us. So we don't read the Bible and say, I'm supposed to be like the good guys in here and not like the bad guys. The only good guy in there is Jesus, right? Is God. 
And this passage here in Daniel, it's not about daring to be a Daniel. It's that God is revealing himself in this passage, and he's pointing, him, pointing us to Christ. This isn't a moral story to be like Daniel. We don't read the Bible to find a moral lesson. If that's the case, then I can, I can solve it for you right now. I can, I can save you the trouble of reading the Bible if that's what we go for. Be good, not bad, right? That's what we're going to do if we take moral lessons out of the Bible. Be good, not bad. And how do you think that would help? Like in my life, I can, give, I can give that to my kids. My parents gave that advice to me. And yet, in the end, we all still fail, right? So we're not Daniel. Daniel is a picture of Jesus. He was unjustly accused, and he was silent before his accusers. He was left for dead. He was sealed behind a stone, and he was miraculously delivered. So the, the upshot, if you can only take one thing from this passage, it's that we should look to the cross for salvation. We don't need to just try harder, because we're going to fail. We need to look to the cross for our salvation, and not just try harder. And so I found, out of this passage, uh, beyond that, I found six lessons in here that I want to share with you guys out of this passage, because there was just so much in here. This could have been, um, like I said, multiple sermons. But the six lessons I have for you, and I put a scripture reference next to each of them, um, are these. One, God wants us to enhance and pray for the land that we're in. And that comes from Jeremiah 29, 7, right? We see that um, being lived out in this passage. But God wants us to enhance and pray for the land that we're in, not to separate ourselves out and just wait for it all to be over. We see here, Daniel was a prophet. He wrote part of the Bible. He was called by God. He did all these things. But in the end, he was a, he was a bureaucrat, right? Like he had an administrative role in a government. And, that tell, and yet at the same time, we know that he was exactly where God wanted him. And if we looked at, remember we saw Colossians 3, uh, it says uh, to do everything as unto the Lord. All of our work is sacred. There's no such thing as you can take a secular job or, oh no, you're, you really love Jesus. Maybe you should think about taking a spiritual job, like a, like a church job or a ministry job. Like all our jobs are ministry jobs. Stay-at-home mom, stay-at-home dad, uh, administrator, weed killer, whatever it is, they're all ministry jobs. Three, God wants us to be defined by our relationship to him. And that verse I'm referring to there is the one in Colossians where it says, uh, my life is hid with Christ on high. But he doesn't want us to be defined first by our roles or something else about me. Hi, I'm Colin. I like, I don't know, dessert, right? Like that's not how I define myself. Or I'm Colin. I'm a dad. Or I'm Colin. This is my job. That's not how God calls us to define ourselves. He wants our, our identities to be defined first and foremost by our relationship to him. Hi, I'm Colin. I'm a child of God. Sinful and wicked as I am, I'm a child of God. Right? That's what he wants us to define ourselves as first. And then our behavior is going to change with that, right? If we remember that first, then when we get in the mix, we're not going to try to save ourselves from it. We're going to remember that God is the one who saves. Fourth, God is our refuge. That's what Psalm 46 says. He's our refuge. He's our help in every present time of trouble. Even, even if the world falls, even if the, the ground shakes, God is my place where I'm going to be secure. Number five, God is our judge. That's actually what Isaiah 33 says. God is our judge. And uh, 
that's important because the Bible does say that God is going to judge everything that we've done. He's going to judge everyone. There will come a time. And we need to prepare ourselves for that judgment. And number six, God alone has the power to save. And I believe that Daniel knew that. He'd been through enough troubled times that we haven't even heard of, uh, but there's enough of them even recorded in Scripture that we know that Daniel was convinced without a shadow of a doubt that God was the one with the power to save. And I hope that we, too, are convinced of that. And if we aren't, I pray that God would uh, convince us of that. So I'm going to close in prayer here, and then uh, Josh is going to come up and lead us through communion. So, Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's about you, not us. That we don't just open the page, put our name in the place of uh, some character in the Bible, and then try to act like that. God, you are so much bigger than that. Uh, you are the one who judges, but you are also the one who, re uh, who is our refuge, and you're the one who saves. Pray that you'd help us to, um, to remember these things as we go through our days, so that it would be, we would be unshaken in, the, in difficult times, so that the world would know that you are God. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.